You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Every Saturday and Sunday, hundreds of women and children in the capital crowd into northbound buses, lumbering along BR-174, that strip of patchy highway that runs 2,234 miles straight to Venezuela. It's a long, hot ride past the Pioneer Factory, the Whirlpool Factory, the S.C. Johnson Factory, the luxury golf resort, the landfill where cell phone signals flutter and the rumble of logging trucks scatters the vultures picking through the refuse before it gets buried. Out here, the concrete gives way to jungle. Military police run exercises on the margins of the road, firing live ammunition and tossing grenades into the trees. The women and children step off the bus at the intersection of the highway and the natural gas plant at the eight kilometer marker. Even though they're only 20 kilometers north of the city, a heat wave like this can make a two hour trip feel like a sweltering ride all the way to Caracas. Joining the procession, the weary visitors carry packages up a gentle slope where three private prison facilities are nestled in the forest, one after the other on the left side of a single lane penetration road flanked by the guard towers and Constantina wire. First is the Instituto Penal Antonio Trinidad, which opened its gates in 2006 to alleviate overcrowding in the system. Originally built to house 736 inmates awaiting trial, 10 years later, the place holds 1,006 inmates in three blocks. Chris Feliciano Arnold has written for the New York Times, Harper's, Sports Illustrated, the Los Angeles Times, McSweeney's, and more. His new book is The Third Bank of the River, Power and Survival in the 21st Century Amazon. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you. This book is a fascinating book, and I have to say, it's shockingly unlike what I expected. (laughs) You begin with a a visit in 2014 to see the World Cup. Talk about the decision to uh, go there after, this was your second journey home, in a sense, wasn't it? Yeah, so... um I was born in Brazil in, in 1981 at the twilight of the military dictatorship there and adopted as an infant to the United States to grow up in, in central Oregon, in the foot of the high desert, in the foot of the Cascade Mountains. Um, and I grew up in a fairly typical rural American home, uh, Boy Scouts, Little League, and so forth. And my parents were always really open with me. Uh, about my adoption. It was never a secret where I was from. In fact, my parents always wanted me to know where I was from. But there's only so much you can you can learn about Brazilian culture in Oregon. And I really knew all through my life that I wanted to go back to Brazil someday. But it wasn't until I was about 25 years old that I actually made the trip um, because I wanted to go after I'd learned the language. I didn't want to go without knowing at least some Portuguese. And I also wanted to go by myself. Um, I'd spent my whole youth sort of hearing stories from others about Brazil, and it was really important for me on sort of like a, a spirit quest level to sort of seek out that, that uh, part of the world on my own. And so I went back to Brazil for the first time in 2006, fell, absolutely fell in love with the country, um, traveled throughout Brazil, um, tried to see as much of the country as I could over the course of the summer. And a few years later, when it was announced that Brazil would be hosting the 2014 World Cup, and later the 2016 Olympics. At the time, I was a, a freelance journalist, um, just kind of like getting my assignments where I could. But that's when I knew I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back to Brazil to cover the World Cup there, knowing that it was going to be this momentous occasion for the country. Um, and yet, uh, as a freelancer at, at a huge global event like that, you're up against a lot of competition for stories. And so I knew there wasn't going to be a lot of opportunity for me in, in Rio, for example, or any of the other... Um, like more famous coastal cities. And in my first trip to Brazil in 2006, I'd, I'd gone to Manaus, the capital of Amazon state, and taken this boat ride from Manaus, um, seven days by slow boat to Belém at the mouth of the Amazon, and was just completely transfixed by the experience. And so I knew as soon as they announced that there would be World Cup matches in Manaus, I told myself, that's where I'm going back. And and I returned to a city in a region that seemed to be completely transformed, even in the eight years since my first visit. And um, one thing led to another, and one story led to another, and 
uh, here we are one World Cup later and <laughs> with a book. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that one of the things I thought you did really well in this uh, book was to create yourself as a compelling and interesting character. And I'd say, I have to say, you're pretty tough on yourself. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering, did you feel that way when you were there? And or, or was it recreated? Did you feel that way looking back at yourself? Because you portray yourself as, I guess, a clueless gringo. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I've always, first of all, as a journalist, whether I'm, whether I'm in Brazil or anywhere else, I always try to be really conscious of myself as an outsider, no matter where I am. Um, and, and to be conscious of my effect as an outsider and as a reporter if I'm in different environments. And that um, sense of self-consciousness is all the more heightened in another country and all the more heightened in the country where I was born but not raised. And so I know coming in, whenever I'm coming and going in, in Brazil, um, I'm always just acutely aware. I have dual citizenship, so in some ways I pass very freely um, f between the two countries and the two cultures. Um, How did in, you get dual citizenship? So um, having been... Um, born in Brazil, mm -hmm. um, and I actually didn't become a United States citizen until I was uh, um, 13 years old. Oh, okay. Um, so I um, retained my Brazilian citizenship even as I became an American citizen. And a law in a law that's since changed, I believe in, in cur under current law, once you become a citizen of any other country, you automatically forfeit your Brazilian citizenship. Oh. But my... Um, birth like predated that law by just a couple of years so I kind of like snuck in under the wire and so I'm, I'm very fortunate to um, have the, these two um, citizenships and these two identities um, which makes it a really special experience always to travel to Brazil and to, to meet people at the same time the country is so enormous the culture is so complex so layered that even as much as as much as I learn about Brazil, the more I learn about Brazil, the more I learn about the Amazon, all I do is discover how much left there is to learn and how much I'll never truly know. And so I wanted, um, it was very important for me in the storytelling to be forthright with the reader about that. And, and, and as well, to put the reader, I, I sort of want to use myself as a stand-in so that the reader can experience the sort of fish-out-of-water <laughs> experience that I felt. Um, and so... If I was a bit hard on myself, I suppose that was that was part of the goal. But I'm I'm glad it's fun to be along for the ride. <laughs> it, it is, and I think one of the things that really struck me, and I I just actually realized this right now. There's a famous quote from uh, William William Gibson: uh, "The future isn't in the future; it's just unevenly distributed." Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think. Brazil and the Amazon is a perfect illustration of that the future is it's the present and the past are unevenly distributed in the Amazon in Brit in Brazil you can go from prehistoric time to beyond the current day to 25 years ago or 50 or 60 years ago, Chicago gangland. <laughs> I, I, I love that you draw the connection to Gibson and, and overall to this um, strange, duplicitous science fiction type of world that it can seem like in the Amazon. And for me, one of the things that's always made the region so mesmerizing um, is the sense of time is so completely um, on a different scale when you're in the Amazon and that on one moment you can be looking at this um, river that is actually and surrounded by you know prehistoric seeming um, plant and animal life, and then you turn the other direction, and there are people like bumping into each other on their cell phones, looking at Instagram or something. And to your point about it being unevenly distributed, um, the sense of that unequal distribution being so harsh along racial and socioeconomic lines makes it all the more striking. Um, you you um, can arrive in, in Manaus or any number of other cities along the river. And one of the first things that strikes me is like, it's on one hand, it's incredible that what human civilization has been able to accomplish, that we can bring ice cold beer and 3G cell service like anywhere in the Amazon basin 
And yet within the same square mile or so, there are people who don't have some of the most, what we would consider here in the United States, at least some of the most basic services, running, running water, sanitation, and so forth. So that uneven distribution is at once just fascinating, but also um, pretty heartbreaking at times as well. You know, um, I, the other thing I have to say is, as I read this book, particularly Manaus, where, which is in the middle of the jungle, as you say, it's an amazing accomplishment. And there's the Teatro, uh, which is this big, ornate uh, kind of opera house. All I could think of was Fitzcarraldo. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, I, I love the, the um, for me, the specter of, of Herzog is always there as, as I'm like walking through the, the, the uh, what he would refer he he just had such a a view of the jungle as this place <laughs> that just like feeds on um, that gives you this special insight into the human condition and for me I'm I'm um, always fascinated like going back and watching his films and just and in, in addition the documentaries made about the making of his <laughs> films where they're just all oh. kind of going crazy out there in the jungle and um, but that that theater for me is is. You mentioned earlier this sort of um, this intermingling between the past, present, and future. So you, to go to a place like the Teatro, knowing that you know there may on one night be an opera performance, and like at the same time, like the White Stripes have been there to play. It's like <laughs> such a complete um, mind blowing, um, mind blowing trip. And for me, another like one of one recent example. I was just back there in April. They now have the the um, cultural secretary in Manaus is like trying to you know make a bunch of improvements to the city, and so now they have a giant um, sculpted Manaus hashtag in front of the teatro <laughs> where tourists can walk by and take their picture like next to the giant Manaus hashtag statue. It's it's incredible, and so these sort of juxtapositions are everywhere you look in the Amazon. I, I thought you did a really uh, great job. Um, in, when you were talking about the World Cup, uh, visiting these people who are like living in the most remotest shacks and and watching, you know, blurry pictures, the blurry World Cup while you're grabbing beer out of melted ice <laughs> in a cooler. It's just so much fun and so interesting. I, I have to say that this book really fantastically changed my picture of the Amazon and of Brazil. And I can't say it necessarily in a positive way. I guess just moved it sideways about uh, 200 yards. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, part of... You were talking earlier about um, me being hard on myself as, as a narrator, and that's one thing that I was trying to be conscious of throughout. Part of it, too, was trying to be really thoughtful about how I represented Brazil. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a country that I have great adoration for that's incredibly close to my heart. And when I first returned to Brazil to cover the cup, um, and actually through a lot of my trips from, say, like 2006 through th 2012, when Brazil was absolutely like the on the world stage, this country on the rise, and everyone was sort of intoxicated <clears throat> by the sense of possibility, I was too. I was completely taken by it, and I was completely convinced that somehow the trajectory of Brazil was just like inevitable move towards um, freedom and democracy and economic growth and this um, big player on the world big stage. player on the world stage I mean you have Lula at the time in the in the I mid 2000s trying to like yeah. broker peace in the Middle East and just like such a such an enormous and charismatic presence and and I was swept away by that and yet um, the further I got into my reporting the further I got into my investigations um, realizing how much of that transformation was on the surface of the country, um, how much of whether it's corruption or public security concerns or inequality or racism, how many challenges um, are remain festering under the surface. And to be clear, these are not challenges that are unique to South America. These are very much pan-American issues. Oh, yes. but, but for me, it was a matter of like trying to re remind myself like I need to also... like. Be be forthright about the challenges in Brazil, and I oh, part of part of the process of writing the book for me was kind of um, the spell that I was under in terms of just rom my romanticization of Brazil was kind of broken over the course. Be romantic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and what you're talking about, I think it was really interesting. You have a great quote from De Gaulle that uh, Brazil is the country of the future and probably always will be. <laughs> I think that perfectly describes the Brazil that you uh, come to in this book. Uh, so, 
let's dial back to your very first time there and you went you wanted to to you went by yourself you mm, remained very much by yourself yeah yeah. Uh, and that seems like even in 2006, that seems like that was a pretty cha- that was a challenging dis- uh, decision. Even especially given that you knew Portuguese and could speak some. Yeah, it was. Um, looking back, I don't know if that was necessarily the best choice to go by myself. I certainly put um, my my girlfriend now my wife, uh, but my girlfriend at the time through a lot of worry. My my parents because uh, uh, this is also this predated a lot of the things that make our travels. A lot easier now. For mm-hmm. example, like Google Maps or all oh. the all the technology that you can take with you around the globe now, and uh-huh. that I used to my great advantage in my reporting in 2014 and on. Um, I didn't really have as much access to in 2006. But for me, um, part of that urge to go by myself was, and and I I imagine other people who are adopted can speak to this as well that. As well as any child's constantly surrounded by the story of like how of their birth story and how they got there and what their childhood was like. But as an adopted child in particular, I feel I was constantly being told stories about um, the story of how I was adopted, how I came to the United States. And then even as I got older, um, when I was in college, for example, I wasn't like a study abroad kid. I was more of like a working in the summer kid. So I didn't get a chance like a lot of my peers to go to Europe or go to South America or go to Brazil in the summer. So even by the time I was 23, 24, I reached this point where I knew people who had traveled to Brazil who were telling me what my own birth country was like. And I was just stubbornly insistent. Like, I didn't want, I almost wanted to like plug my ears. I didn't want um, my experience to be colored by the experiences of others. So for that reason, I was just hell bent on going to Brazil by myself, you know, whatever may come of it and uh it led to some unpredictable outcomes but i looking back um it was certainly probably the most pivotal experience of my life i i love the the way that you had to to travel there's there's one when you made the trip to the jungle it's it's i have to say it's pretty funny <laughs> that that you you went and found somebody and you hired this person said take me to the jungle and that's not they did sort of so explain what happened um so i was sort of much like i was i was determined in 2006 to see what i imagined at the time would be like the real jungle and up until that point most of what i understood about brazil was through books um i've always been a big reader and i among other things, I packed just a ton of books about Brazil with me on my Brazil trip, thinking that through some combination of travel and like careful study while on my travels, I would be able to somehow absorb more about the country through some combination of books and lived experience. And so I went to uh, the Amazon hoping to f- see some sort of authentic experience that matched up with all the reading that I've been doing. And so went with the intent of getting a... a, a trip out to the interior of the Amazon, but I was also like hell-bent that I wouldn't go on any ordinary tourist, (laughs) no ordinary tourist um, experience. I wanted something truer than that. So instead of going to any one of the number of very well-established and probably more consistent tourist experiences, I sort of went out of my way to find the most obscure tour operator I could find in the city of Manaus. And as it turned out, I was more or less just passed along this sort of gringo supply chain from, from a from a office in the middle of Manaus to a water taxi to a young kid driving a combi to what ended up ultimately being a really nice place to camp out there in the jungle. But it took, I was passed along a few times, and I'm sure um, various people along points in the in the travel profited off of my adventure. But um, it certainly for me was a matter of, of trying to get at an experience that I thought um, would somehow be, for lack of a better word, authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of the, dis- the discovery for me along the way was that so much of, that that, 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 that uh, pursuing that authentic experience is ultimately an illusion in and of itself, and that everything I was seeing along the way was the real jungle. Um, I just wasn't wanting to, it wasn't the jungle that I was expecting. And so it was that that tension of whenever we're traveling, I think, between what we expect to see, what we want to see, and what's actually 
um, in front of us is always something to negotiate as a traveler. Well, I think, too, what, what we realized, especially what I realized as I read the entirety of the book, you do take us deep into the jungle. We do meet you know, Indians that have never been met before. It's fascinating stories. And, but is that the, that kind of combination of urban bizarreness and the really kind of scungy urban aspects that, you, that took you from one to the next to the next, that is the authentic experience. You, you can go in, in Brazil. I, the, one of the feelings is, is that it's very easy to go from something that seems like a bad part of town in any town USA, or really, really bad, super scary part of town in any town USA, to uh, the trackless jungle <laughs> by virtue of like a really dodgy kind of form of transportation <laughs> driven by somebody who's way too young to drive. Who yeah, shouldn't probably be driving or, or smoking or, or um, taking uh, tourists around anywhere. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's really remarkable the extent to which all of this multiplicity of experiences is um, ready for... Um, experience in, in Brazil and that I find that as I was growing up there and I feel like broadly across the United States and many parts of the West our perception of Brazil is, is so um, is one of, of Tropicalia and, and almost so focused on Rio de Janeiro and these, these coastal cities that mm-hmm. um, oftentimes that n- entire northern region of Brazil um, is one that people don't even associate with the country and even when we do think about the Amazon or the Brazilian Amazon, our perception of that experience is so often narrowly focused on just certain like Hollywood tropes of the jungle or the rainforest or the flora and fauna that we see on TV. And so I was, I was um, surprised throughout and continue to be surprised every time I return to Brazil generally, but to the Amazon specifically, with just um, the enormous range of human experiences in that human landscape there. And so for me, a big portion of my my project in, in this book was to try to um, expand that, that human landscape for people in terms of what they think of. It's really, you do an amazing job, and, and you talk about it. I think this is, I had never thought about this before, but... As an orphan, you were looking for your own story, and I think that that, that to a certain extent, might have affected the way you see the world in terms of being able to perceive story and stories and being able to involve yourself in stories, um, where others of us might just see people, random people going by. And I think that's the power of this book is to you weave so many really interesting stories together. Uh, talk about, um, for you as a writer, the relationship between the individual stories, the individual experiences, and creating this wonderful uh, quilt, this vision of, of Brazil as a city that is both in the primitive past and in in the rundown future. <laughs> well, 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 thank you. Um, I feel like a, as I went into the reporting of the book, I had some notions of the ideas that I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, the intersection between tradition and modernity, for example. Um, the challenges in of the region in terms of... Um, environmental challenges, socioeconomic rifts, and so forth. And and so going into the project, I sort of had a notion that there were some ideas I wanted to explore, but it wasn't, um, these weren't ideas that I, I was able to get to in human terms until I met people who could um, help me bring human voices and human experience to those ideas. And so a lot of it is this sounds a little bit unsophisticated, but a lot of it was just hanging out and just see, like talking for every, for every person who appears in the book, there are um, 25 other people equally as interesting who maybe for one reason or another are, are not in the book. But um, it really came down to just every time I went there trying to meet with and speak to as many different people as possible from as many different walks of life as possible and just getting them to tell me a bit about their lives, um, getting them to show me places, their favorite places or places that they would avoid, for example, and just um, 
trying to, over the course of taking all those pages upon pages of notes, just arranging them in, in, in accordance with those themes, some of which, some of my theories about the region were validated over the course of years of reporting, others were completely upended, but over the, over the course of this reporting and writing, trying to shape a narrative that sort of gets at these ideas and explores these themes, but also keeps the, keeps the reader curious and keeps the reader wanting to turn pages and find out what happens next. And a lot of it happens as, um, as someone who writes fiction as well, as I was reporting this story, I found myself really wishing that I had the ability of the fiction writer to just create what I needed as a service of the narrative. Whereas in reporting in nonfiction, you're really at the whims of what the reporting and what lived experience actually gives you. So that's sort of a, it's a bit like playing jazz in that respect. You kind of have to work with what you have going on. And, and I was very fortunate. I caught a lot of lucky breaks in that my, the most intense years of reporting for me there overlapped with some of the most intense years of political and economic um, crisis and drama in Brazil, generally in the Amazon specifically. So for um, a lot of the timing aspects of the reporting was like catching lightning in a bottle. I was just there at an incredibly interesting time for the country. You know, um, I, I love the, the, your story of that, about uh, when uh, Funai and you'll, you can tell us what that stands for. And when the Isolados started attacking a, another tribe, this is a really fascinating look at the, at the edges of a world that we still do not know everything about uh, many years later. Yeah, so FUNAI is, um, is Brazil's federal indigenous protection agency. And the... the a section of the book that you're referring to um, is the tale of, and this actually happened in the midst of the World Cup um, mayhem happening in, Man in Manaus, um, hundreds of miles away on the very borders of the Brazilian Amazon and the Peruvian Amazon, um, there was a settled tribe, um, the Ashaninka, who are um, very much, they live days away from the nearest road. I mean, the, this tribe is, is very... Um, isolated in among themselves, but they still have plenty of contact with the outside world. They have radio connections to the outside world. They, ha they receive and, and send supplies to the, to the outside world and are, are in many ways very much connected not only with a network of, of their own ethnic group, but also with the rest of contemporary Brazil. Um, that tribe um, found themselves uh, essentially invaded by a truly isolated tribe, a tribe that had little to no contact with the outside world that was under threat of massacre by um, drug traffickers in their territory. So for me, um, when I first heard of the story, I was, first of all, stunned that it was happening simultaneously with the World Cup. And this story merited all of like half a paragraph of coverage in the newspaper and everything else in the paper at the time was just all World Cup action elsewhere in Brazil. But it struck me that even within this context of um, indigenous affairs in the Amazon, there are so many layers of identity and politics and um, tribal Science. affiliations. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things I thought was so interesting was the evolution of our understanding of what the heck to do with a tribe that has never contacted the modern world. We, you start with the famous Philoboas brothers, and give us their history and take us up through the contemporary um, thoughts. So, so talk about the Villa Boas. And how, one of the things I think is so interesting is just these layers of history, and they're very specific. It's not uh, a contiguous thing. This, uh, Brazil is more like a sedimentary rock. It's not... <laughs> I love, love, love that. Yeah. Um, so the evolution you're describing in terms of uh, the question, the so-called question of what is to be done about the indigenous people of Brazil um, is one that the country of Brazil has been grappling with literally for centuries in terms of how to balance um, the indigenous population in the country with the, the contemporary Brazil's need to, to develop, um, for lack of a better word. And um, in the middle of the 20th century, um, the Villas Boas brothers that you mentioned um, were among the pioneers of this approach that the best way to serve and protect um, indigenous groups uh, in Brazil was essentially to make uh, contact with them in a controlled fashion and essentially help 
relocate them to areas of the country where they could continue to um, live in more or less their um, their traditional structures, but while also creating space for things like highways and um, telecommunications and new farmland and so forth. Um, and as well intentioned as that um, approach may have been, it led to some tremendous and terrible consequences for the indigenous people who were in the path of that controlled contact. So um, countless indigenous tribes were uh, victims of, of not only violence, but disease agents and um, all of the different uh, uh, perils that come when, when uh, a culture that's been living a certain way for, for centuries it's, comes in contact with bulldozers and rifles and airplanes and so forth. None now, of those as deadly as the t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. And even, and every, <laughs> even something as simple as a t-shirt. Something as seemingly innocuous as a t-shirt could potentially carry enough disease agents to, um, to wipe out an entire um, indigenous um, tribe. And so the, the, one of the, in, in our time now, one of the contemporary debates going on is over, over time there's, there's been a discussion of whether the best way forward is to make controlled contact with tribes and um, identify these isolated tribes um, who are at greatest risk of being um, potentially wiped out, whether through disease, whether through um, violence by traffickers or so forth, or whether to continue down the path that, that um, Funai later adopted, which is a no-contact policy, which is that um, we, we have to give uh, isolated tribes absolutely as much um, autonomy and self-determination as possible. And to this day, it's a, it's a debate among anthropologists um, on where there are strong and compelling arguments on both sides. And for applied anthropologists, for example, are using technology in remarkable ways to try to measure the health of tribes in as least invasive way as possible, using satellite imagery, for example, to measure the size and growth and expansion and contraction of their agricultural areas, of their, of their villages, in an effort to identify when is a tribe at that tipping point when they could potentially um, be at risk of, of extinction and, and therefore identify when controlled contact is the best measure. On the flip side, there are other anthropologists who believe strongly that that is the worst possible approach and that can only serve the purposes of multinational corporations that wish to develop the Amazon. <laughs> so it's a very heated debate. And at the center of this debate, and this is something I'm constantly reminding myself of as I'm, as I'm reporting on this story, are individual families, um, small uh, tribal units, oftentimes down to just dozens of people, um, mothers, fathers, their children, who are literally the last of their people, um, and for whom any encounter, whether it's with um, malevolent traffickers or benevolent anthropologists, could potentially lead to disaster. Um, and one of the things that, that you point out is that for all our intention of putting them, you know, the no contact vi vision of uh, which some one of the uh, uh, administrators calls like keeping them in a zoo, which is not un not not a bad analogy in a sense. Um, it doesn't you can try that as much as you want, but um, drug traffickers, loggers and anybody else who wants those resources will not be stopped by all the good intentions of the government. Absolutely. And oftentimes those good intentions are exactly that, good intentions on paper. <laughs> and when it comes to funding, when it comes to personnel, when it comes to political will to actually create and protect these boundaries, um, it's just not there. And that's a challenge that's even amplified now in, in the context of Brazil's current political and economic crisis, is that one of the first things that's uh, taken a hit in recent years has been um, services for uh, indigenous protection. Um, and as we've seen the ascent of the right in Brazil, much as we have um, these sort of nationalist and, and pro-development interests here in the United States, we see that one of the first um, legislative changes that gets pushed through is opening up these protected areas. And so going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Pan-American challenges, that these issues are not just limited to Brazil, um, what we see in Brazil right now are powerful business interests eager to open up protected reserve natural areas 
for the sake of exploiting natural resources. Um, and Boy, it's, I haven't uh, heard of that before. <laughs> and it's exactly so. It's it's a challenge, and and it's a challenge in Brazil. It's a challenge um, across the world. But it's uh, one of the ways that the further I got into the story, the more I realized how timely and how um, how urgent the challenges there are for for those of us here in the United States as well. I think that that's one of the, I think, the most interesting aspects of this book is that by virtue of the fact that Brazil is in more underpopulated as or especially Amazonas, where you where you were, um, it, it gives us it, I guess, clarifies or distills the problem so that the kind of um, criminality can get a huge leg up and you deal with that and in, in when you talk about the prisons and what you call the birth of monsters um, and and also the corporations are multinational corporations can operate with an impunity that they can't have here mm -hmm. so it, it's like a um, many ways the poor uh, the portion of Brazil that you look at is like our world kind of like taken up with exaggerated. It's like mm. almost the Looney Tunes uh, Marvel <laughs> Universe, a version of our world, the bad parts. Yeah, I mean, and, and a big part of that is the lack of transparency. Mm. Um, and there's, there's a lot of great journalism being done in Brazil by both Brazilian journalists and as well as foreign correspondents in Brazil. And there's a lot of great journalism being done in Amazonas and, and Pará in the regions of, of northern Brazil. However, there's so many stories to tell there and a lot of powerful interests, whether they be politicians or corporations um, or others, uh, criminal elements, take advantage of the lack of transparency there to um, really make some decisions like in, that serve their interests at the expense of everyday people. Um, and so for me, when I think about, um, when I think about the, you mentioned that it's sort of these, these exaggerated challenges. One, one, one way that that was dramatized for me is in terms of thinking about how many of the, uh, the challenges that, um, the United States underwent in, and, and it's particularly the, the, challenges that indigenous people underwent in the United States in the 19th century. Um, indigenous people in Brazil faced that in the 20th century. So, for example, you have horrific tales of um, explorers, so-called explorers or people who wanted to exploit the interior of Brazil, um, literally bombing, dropping dynamite on tribes in the Amazon. So if you imagine all of the horrors of the American West taking place in an era with airplanes and and dynamite uh, and and um, assault rifles, that's what's happening, and and that's um, the challenges that indigenous um, people are facing in Brazil to this day. So you have cowboys versus Indians with assault rifles and weapons in the densest rainforest in the world. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's um, I mean it's, it's the Wild West, <laughs> only worse. <laughs> now uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the the your look at the, the FDN and, and the, the criminal part of this. This is so fascinating. So tell us about the birth uh, of the FDN. It, it begins with, two, with uh, G. He yeah, is so, in prison. Who is G and who does he work with? Yeah, so to, to, take, a, um, to take a step back, of, um, the FDN being the Familia del Norte and the Family of the North, which is one of the most powerful criminal organizations um, in the north of Brazil, um, it is... Um, organizations like these across Brazil were really born of its military dictatorship in the in the 60s, 70s, and, and early 80s, in which the government at the time, um, in its effort to uh, quelch dissent, imprisoned uh, everyday criminals and smugglers and so forth alongside academics and dissident artists and so forth. And both of these sides had a lot to teach each other in terms of, um, you know, criminals were able to teach the academics and dissident artists about the profit to be made in arms and drug trafficking. But meanwhile, the academics and dissident artists were able to teach the criminals, you know, the importance of, you know, doctrine and leadership structure and so forth. And so what emerged from this in the 80s and 90s and up till today and the, and the sort of powerful organizations that you see in Brazil, um, not only in, in the most famous of which in Rio de Janeiro, but that are, are present as well, in like the family of the North of Manaus, are these organizations that are at once 
incredibly sophisticated in their criminal tactics, um, but also driven by a certain um, and a very powerful ideology, um, and who, as organizations, truly fancy themselves um, families. And the family of the North was born when two um, kingpins who controlled different neighborhoods in Manaus were both imprisoned together in the south, in a federal prison in the south of Brazil, and under the tutelage of some of the uh, criminal gangs there in the southern parts of Brazil, realized um, that w when they got back to Manaus, they were probably better off joining forces and trying to become an international operation rather than continuing to have turf wars in, in, within Manaus themselves. So through that uh, agreement, um, the family of the north was born. And quickly grew over the course of the last decade or so into one of the most powerful organizations um, in South America and has a chokehold on the, um, the Rio Solimois route of drug trafficking, which is one of the, the primary routes of cocaine trafficking from Peru and Colombia into Brazil um, and elsewhere around the world. And so um, as the state has tried to... Um, combat drug trafficking. The, the gangs have also, as they've become more consolidated in the prisons, begun to use these prisons as sort of nerve centers for their operations as well as their recruitment. Um, and so uh, what we see now as we look at the family of the North um, in Manaus is an organization that on one hand controls drug traffic, whether it's marijuana, cocaine, or other traffic throughout the city, but also has powerful business interests that owns a local soccer team that has um, attorneys and accountants and, and um, a IT guy in the prison who registers new recruits with a passcode. <laughs> and so it's a highly sophisticated organization. But one thing I want to emphasize about this group is oftentimes when we see, again, things we see in the United States, we see these organizations labeled as, as gangs and thugs and criminals. But what I want to emphasize about the FDN is that for thousands of people in Manaus, they are not um, gang members. They fulfill, they fill a social function in neighborhoods. They offer protection for people who cannot find protection elsewhere. They can hook up cable TV for you. <laughs> they can make sure that if you're a little short on rent, maybe you have your, your rent this month. They can make sure that um, you have a soccer team in your neighborhood that you can be proud of. And so part of the exploration of, of the FDN was also realizing that the police and government elements responsible for public security in Manaus in and of themselves can become their own um, criminal force. And as I investigated um, sort of the birth of the FDN and how its, its uh, uh, conflicts became intertwined with the, with the city and, and state police, it became clear to me that the lines between cops and, and gang members were incredibly blurred. Um, and, and one of the more complex challenges of re reporting the book was trying to untangle that mess. <laughs> I, I thought you did a fantastic job. Eh? And it, it, it's the center. I, I, as I say, I started this book. I thought, oh, Amazon, we're going to, you know, piranha can do, you know, some He's going to get bugs under his nails or something, you know, <laughs> not fun. I did not expect true crime. I did not expect 1920s Chicago recreated writ large in the Amazon River Basin, but that's what it is. And, and I think that, as you say, it's not these people... They operate crime and they're certainly willing to kill, but they also provide a sense of family and a sense of uh, social solidarity, I guess. Yeah, that solidarity is, is a great, great word to describe um, and to describe what's happening. And um, that's not to excuse the incredible violence that they wield and the, and the ways that they abuse of, of, of their, their power, but they're incredibly inventive and they're incredibly... Um, adaptable and in a place like Manaus necessity is the mother of invention and for many neighborhoods and for many um, for many people um, in Manaus uh, the the path to respect the path to power and the path to means runs through um, organizations like the FDN and as does events like the bloody weekend so tell us about the bloody weekend this is an amazing it's 
I hadn't heard of it here, and it's terrifying. Yeah, so um, this was the summer after the World Cup um, in Manaus, and at this time, the economy um, had taken another leg down. The political crisis in Brazil was, was um, entering a new and more complex stage. And um, on a particularly hot Friday during a heat wave in Manaus, two very important homicides took place within hours of each other. Um, about four o'clock in the afternoon, a, poli a military police sergeant who was working uh, as an off-duty money courier was robbed and killed as he was leaving a bank in Manaus. Um, within minutes of his death, military police across the city were putting a call out to their colleagues and to their comrades saying, we need to find out who did this and, and they need to be punished, they need to be caught. Um, just a few hours later, in one of the prisons in the north of Manaus, um, a member of a, of a gang that's rival to the FDN was beheaded by other inmates in the prison. Um, and within minutes of his death, his, which was recorded by cell phone by prisoners in the prison, um, word was put out among the various rival gangs that um, his death needed to be avenged. Um, and what happened over the course of the next 72 hours or so were that dozens of people across the city um, were killed in drive-by shootings uh, by masked gunmen. And in the course of this wave of homicides, it was initially very unclear who was responsible for which killings, which gangs were responsible, were the police involved at certain crime scenes, the munitions found left behind were of the sort that are only able to be obtained by police. Um, many of the crime scenes, um, military police uh, units were seen observing the shooting and doing nothing. And in some cases, military police followed up afterwards to clean up after the shooters. Uh, and so by Monday morning, uh, what would be come to be known as the Bloody Weekend was this tangled mess, this knot of killings that um, would be up for both the state police and the federal police to try to untangle over the course of the subsequent months. Uh, I think you do a wonderful job of just uh, creating. It's a very you're telling a very complicated story, but you may, do manage to really pull out the threads so that we can follow how deeply these different strains of criminality and justice and also um, social integration and uh, uh, solidarity, as I was saying before, are woven into the Brazilian culture. There are, there are all these really strong threads and this includes the corporate thread and you, taught, you write at one point the only thing more transformational than the presence of Norte Energia will be the absence of Norte Energia. <laughs> so tell us about that in yeah. the city of the vultures. Yeah. So the city of vultures in the third portion of the book um, focuses on the, the municipality of Altamira Pará, which is the site of the Belavonchi hydroelectric dam, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, an enormous, one of the largest construction projects in the history of Brazil um, intended to be the second largest hydroelectric dam in the world that was projected to produce eventually 10% of Brazil's electricity. Um, and such a project could only be undertaken not by the government alone, but through a public-private partnership called Norte Energia, oh. which was a combination of state-run um, energy interests as well as uh, many, uh, literally dozens of corporate entities who had all put their names in the hat for these bids, which later on we would discover among Brazil's corruption crisis were bids that were not always earned in the most um, above-the-board way. Um, Norte Energia, as an entity, led this, the small city of Altamira, which is a, a, was once a rural municipality on the banks of, of one of the biggest tributaries of the Amazon River, um, Norte Energia led the complete transformation of this town um, from a relatively small community of, of, of indigenous uh, people and river folk to one of the fastest growing cities in Brazil, um, expanded for the purpose of helping build this enormous hydroelectric dam. 
And so what I saw in Altamira during the course of my reporting there was a city that had been completely transformed, a city where even a few years ago, the primary form of transportation was by foot or by bicycle or by donkey. And now um, the city is overrun with traffic. Um, traffic accidents and fatalities have skyrocketed, violence, homicides, um, all of the uh, trappings of contemporary urban life have suddenly descended upon Altamira. And tens of thousands of people, as the dam was finished and as the river um, was, the flow of the river was altered and flooded um, an enormous portion of the forest, I tens of thousands of people. Tennessee Valley Authority. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Similar, a sim very similar scenario, but happening in the, in the 21st century in the Amazon, in which tens of thousands Fantastic. of people were moved from their riverside homes and essentially moved into suburbs, ready-built suburbs that North Energia had built. <laughs> And then where North Energia had installed power meters, yes. where their new customers could um, dutifully write their checks each month. I thought that, I love that they had these like templates of kind of American style, how with an American style kitchen. <laughs> I, I just thought it was so interesting and really almost surreal. Mm -hmm. I, parts of this book uh, read almost some, like something Philip K. Dick might have written on a, his Amazon vacation. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, Philip K. Dick, and going back to what you were talking about earlier with William Gibson, it was my visit to Altamira when I, I was sort of trying to wrap my mind around what is the world of the Amazon that I'm, mm -hmm. that I'm trying to convey here. And it wasn't until I, I spent time in Altamira that I realized that it, this is a dystopian world. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until that visit that that um, that confluence you mentioned earlier of past and of present and that unequal distribution of the future was never more clear to me than when I got off the bus in Altamira. Um, and that for me was when the entire world building of the book crystallized. I think that that is a really good phrase that you use, world building, because for us, this is an astonishing uh, vision of world building and it's our world it's just imagined in a way that we we all have our various presets as you say you know you think sunny beach is rio de janeiro and we think the lost city of z mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's kind of hard in our brains to put one into the other and mm -hmm. that's what you do and that's what's happening right now, and that's what the world you build. It, it's, it's where the future is being dropped into the past, and the past is being dropped into the future. Well, thank you. It was, um, it's something that um, that world is one that still continues to astonish me to this day. So I was just um, in Manaus um, back in April. The book had long been finished, but I was there to return and, and visit with friends and also to do some reporting in the north of Brazil um, on the Venezuelan border. But as soon as I got off the airplane in Manaus, the first thing I saw on the ground was a sticker pointing me to where I could find an Uber. <laughs> and so for me, it's especially coming from here in the Bay Area to you take this half day journey across the planet and then to to land and get off the plane and you're in the rainforest and it's humid and muggy and you get off and and every time I go there's something new and astonishing there and that seems so dissonant and so the the marvels and the surprise never end and it's one reason why I always look forward to going back. The new book by Chris Feliciano Arnold is The Third Bank of the River, Power and Survival in the 21st Century Amazon. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. All right, you are ready for the lightning round? All right, let's do it. <laughs> The new book by Chris Feliciano. <laughs> okay. The new book by Chris Feliciano Arnold is "The Third Bank of the River: Power and Survival in the 21st Century Amazon." Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you. This is an unusual vision of the Amazon. It's not just insects uh, crawling up your uh, fingernails in the deep jungle, and it's not sunny beaches in Rio. It's the two of those put in a mix master <laughs> and set to high. <laughs> yeah, for me, um, that was one of the things about the Amazon rainforest that completely surprises me is this merging of two worlds, the past and the present. And that for me was uh, the creative project and the journalistic challenge of this book was trying to capture those two worlds in one story. 
Well, story is important because you were seeking not just the story of the Amazon, but also your own story. So talk about how your own story fit into this bigger vision that you uh, were seeking and which ended up being rather different, I think, than you expected. Uh, yeah, so my first visit to the Amazon rainforest was in 2006 as a 25-year-old. Um, I returned to Brazil, which was the country where I was born in, in 1981. It's sort of the twilight of the country's military dictatorship. Um, and I had been adopted from Brazil as an infant and spent my entire life um, in central Oregon at the foot of the Cascade Mountains and living a fairly all-American life. And yet when I returned to Brazil at the age of 25, I really wanted to seek out and understand my birth country. Um, and I spent the summer backpacking around by myself and of all the regions that I visited, it was the Amazon region and a, a boat trip that I took from Manaus to Belém, um, several days on a slow boat on the river that really woke me up to um, what, in my mind, is one of the most fascinating regions on the planet. You know, you do give us a, a really a fascinating story of contact between uh, a uh, and a tribe that is still completely un was unknown and unnamed to us. So talk about how that happened and how that played out for you. Yeah, so during the World Cup, actually, in 2014 in Manaus, while the world had its spotlight on Manaus and Brazil's other World Cup host cities, um, in the far remote corner of Brazil on the border of Peru, um, a isolated indigenous tribe came into contact with a settled tribe there. And I will point out that even that settled tribe was seven days away from the nearest road. So that settled tribe was already fairly um, isolated, but they um, found their village invaded by um, an isolated tribe that was uh, seeking help and refuge from a group of traffickers that had massacred some of their family members in, in their home village. And so one of the stories that I follow in the book is how those two tribes interacted, how the Brazilian federal government got involved, and how they had to um, grapple with how best to help this isolated tribe that wanted nothing more than to be kept to themselves, but were forced to make contact, um, and how um, the tribe could be supported in a context where even something as innocuous as a t-shirt could potentially contain enough uh, disease agents to, to ravage the tribe with even something as simple as a common cold or flu could have done enormous damage to the, to the tribe. And so... Um, the story that I pursue uh, in that strand is the story of the, um, the uh, Brazilian Federal Indigenous Protection Agency um, and a Sao Paulo-based indigenous doctor um, and their, um, their mission to try to uh, bring this tribe back to health um, and, and ensure their protection as they returned home. Uh, for, and that was, to a certain extent, that's kind of where... I was expecting it as I read a book about the Amazon. Then we come into the part where all of a sudden your jungle experience turns into something, it's true crime, and, and it's true crime, urban poverty. So talk about the FDN and your uh, the monsters that uh, were created. Yeah, so I'm glad that that part of the book took you by surprise because I sort of nestle the uh, true crime story in the middle of the book. And um, essentially, uh, a year after the World Cup in Manaus, um, there was a series of murders uh, in the city in which 36 uh, people were killed in drive-by shootings over a matter of just three days. In, in an event that would come to known as the Bloody Weekend. Um, and this was a, a knot of violence that would take months to untangle because both the state authorities, people in the community, the media, uh, struggled to untangle who was even responsible for these shootings. Was it vigilante police? Was it um, the FDN, the, uh, the family of the North Gang? Was it their rival gang? Um, were some of them just random acts of violence? But it was an enormous um, uh, wave of crime that swept over Manaus and resulted in a security crackdown and also resulted in an internal affairs investigation uh, in which the state and federal police uh, tried to go after the vigilante police who were responsible for some of the killings and hold them accountable. And, and I think, too, the, the, what struck me about this book was the way that 
civilization itself is unevenly distributed. It's like somebody took like 20th, a, a scoop of the 20th century and held it over, crumpled it into tiny little pieces and then held it over Brazil. And, you know, some of it, some of those seeds took fruit in, in Rio de Janeiro and the coast and the rest of them just turned into a big mess everywhere else. And I mean, even in a city like Manaus, for example, um, which is a city of 2 million people surrounded by 2 million miles of rainforest, you can find that an unequal distribution of opportunity and of, of the future, so to speak. So just as one example, um, when I was in Manaus in 2016 covering uh, Olympic soccer games that were being hosted there, it was shortly after a new mobile game had hit called Pokemon Go. And I was there watching a uh, soccer match at a public plaza in which a, a dozens of, of young affluent kids in Manaus were running around the park playing Pokemon Go with their iPhones, trying to capture these augmented reality monsters. Meanwhile, less than a, a mile away as the crow flies, there were entire other neighborhoods that have no running water, that have no sanitation, that have scarce electricity. And so for me, one of the um, remarkable but also heartbreaking aspects of Manaus and the Amazon is what humankind has been able to accomplish there, what opportunities and what it's been able to create there for some who can afford the means. But yet, despite all of those achievements and advancements and so-called development, um, our systems have, have been unable to provide um, the basics of, of what we would consider prosperity for thousands of others. The new book by Chris Feliciano Arnold is The Third Bank of the River, Power and Survival in 21st Century Amazon. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.